watchers in the fourth dimension. Men have many homes in many places. One day, we'll know all the mysteries of the skies. We'll stop our wondering. Hello, and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. In this fourth episode, where we'll be discussing Marco Polo. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley, and I call my car my warlord's tomb. We're on to our first missing story. For those of you who are not aware of the fact that there are missing stories in Doctor Who, stay tuned until the end, when we will talk through how they came to be missing, the search that is ongoing, and what the chances are of more being returned to the BBC. As we start thinking about Marco Polo, this is an interesting story. It's really the first pure historical that we get. And as such, it's not hugely influenced by what was going on at the time. So somehow this week, I feel like the various events that were going on as part of the Cold War and in the civil rights movement in the US are actually somewhat irrelevant. Well, I think this is just your straight up goal of Sidney Newman. This is your classic educational episode. Yeah, what I find interesting on that, to your point, Riley, is while we get some history, we also get a couple of very basic science lessons in this as well. Beyond that, looking at what was going on behind the scenes, the main production team was still in place. We have the original cast still there as well. We do have our first appearance of of John Lucarotti, who wrote this story, and uh, he will be back. And wasn't he pulled in particularly to do this by Sidney Newman because of like a, a Canadian connection? He was. They've worked together at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And if I recall correctly, he had actually come over to the UK at the same time as Sidney Newman and worked with him at the Associated Broadcasting uh, Corporation, ABC. And uh, I think he wrote on the Avengers as well, which, of course, Sidney Newman actually spearheaded. Yeah, there's definitely a strong connection between the two of them. Behind the camera here, we have the return of, of Waris Hussein, who, of course, wrote the first, sorry, didn't write, directed the first four episodes in uh, of the show. And for one episode only, episode four, The Wall of Lies, that was directed by John Crockett. So there's a slight discontinuity in direction there. And uh, I believe he would actually come back with some ideas for later serials, although I don't think he, was, he directed anything else. With that, the 10-second plot summary this week is actually with yours truly for the first time. In this episode, our heroes meet Marco Polo, who turns out to be the dumbest wise man in history. He takes the TARDIS from them and plans to give it to Kublai Khan, forcing our heroes on a two-month journey across the desert. In the meantime, the obvious villain is obvious to everyone except Marco, who, despite the villain's constant scheming, only seems to notice at the end when the villain attempts to kill Kublai Khan. Good job, Marco. I was surprised he noticed even then. I mean, I was kind of thinking he might continue to give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm sure at that point he could have rationalized that it was still a ploy by the TARDIS crew to discredit Tigana. Tigana will not be remembered highly in Doctor Who villain them. No, he will not. Strangely, though, um, Darren Nesbitt, who played Tigana, will actually come back in a big Finnish audio produced in the early 2000s called Spare Parts. While Tigana will be forever forgotten, Darren Nesbitt will actually come back to Doctor Who. I know, certainly for Julie, this is her first time experiencing this serial. Oh <laughs> Don, Riley, either either of you on this one before? I haven't. No, I think when I watched The First Doctor, I think I tried to give this one a shot, and then the reconstruction just kind of kind of killed me the first time. So, 
Yeah, I, I, I'll be honest and say, I think the last time I did this one, I, I did a Dog Team Marathon starting in 2011 and wrapped that up in 2013. And I think I did the narrated audio of this rather than a reconstruction. So this was my first time seeing it in this format. I know that myself, Riley and Julie all did the, the later loose cannon reconstruction. Don, I think you, you used something different, didn't you? I did indeed. I found a channel on YouTube called Who Recons that does these 3D animated reconstructions of all the missing episodes. They aren't perfect, and you miss out on a lot of the costumes and sets that you do get to see in the loose canon reconstructions. But you can also tell that a lot of love and effort went into them, so I can't really criticize them too harshly. Yeah, and I, I think as we go through these 60s stories, particularly the ones that have missing episodes, it will be interesting to see how we all react to the various ways that the gaps have been filled in. I didn't find it so, so terrible. I listen to audiobooks every day, possibly hours at a time, so I appreciate getting at least some visualization so I can kind of picture what some of these characters look like. At least the story was intriguing enough that I could get through all seven episodes. It definitely took me a little while to get through it. I don't think this is something that, that one could binge watch in a day. I think this is definitely a bit of a slow burner. With the reconstruction, the one that we watch with the stills, the set design and the costumes are really impressive. It was really well done. So what we watched was actually Loose Cannon's second reconstruction. They did one that was about, I, I want to say about 10 years older than the one we watched, that they actually used the color stills rather than the black and white. So it wasn't quite as true to what you would see on the screen. But seeing this, the color telesnaps just really showed how stunning all of those locations, all, all of the sets, all of the costumes really were, because they are just beautiful. I have seen some of the color stills for this episode, and if you look at them and you see how absolutely colorful they are, I mean, just vibrant, and to think that they put all that effort into it, and yet it would be shown on black and white. All right, so we actually, once again, pick off exactly from where the previous serial ended, with the giant footprint in the snow. And was anyone else incredibly disappointed to find out that that was not a Yeti? Extremely. I think I was even more disappointed to find that Ian then came in and was just immediately being rational because he's Ian. I was more disappointed that the Doctor left all of his character development back in the TARDIS. Yeah, that was really odd. It seems like he almost has like a split personality. It's like all the development of, of the newfound respect and friendship that they have gained through the Edge of Destruction just kind of was forgotten about. It was a very noticeable shift in tone. That really is something that comes back over the course of the story. While he's pretty cranky the first few episodes, by the end, he's pretty much taking on the part of the cheerful grandfather. But I, I was very amused at how in, in the beginning he was immediately cranky and steps out of the TARDIS and immediately says, I don't like this place, which really reminded me of something that my 72-year-old father would say. <laughs> Old man yells at Cloud. Exactly. Get off my lawn. Yeah, at the end of the previous serial, he was all excited to go on an adventure and explore their surroundings. But here, as soon as he steps out, he immediately changes his mind and says he has work to do and goes back inside. Yeah, and that 
that led to a really nice kind of flip in previous circumstances. So where in the Daleks we had the Doctor want to go off exploring, while Ian and Barbara were very much, let's go back to the TARDIS. Here we have the Doctor who stays with the TARDIS and Ian and Barbara want to go off and explore. That was a nice little flip, I thought. So we get our first, well, I guess our second actual fault with the TARDIS. The first one being the previous episode, and then we had the the fake fault in the Daleks. So this is the third story where we've had something going wrong with the TARDIS. I mean, you have a a device that can literally teleport you anywhere, so you have to do something to anchor it there, or your characters will just want to, well, let's just leave. That is very true. They do find some other ways of preventing them from using the TARDIS over the course of this season, but that's, you know, not an unfair point. All of us, having watched modern Doctor Who, we're used to the notion that the interior of the TARDIS is in a different dimension to the exterior. And yet here we have the fault, the heat goes out, and the TARDIS basically allows in the elements from the outside. So they're going to freeze whether they're inside or outside of it. I I do kind of like the idea of the four of them just spending seven episodes huddled (laughs) together in the TARDIS for warmth. (laughs) So... Yeah, we uh, we meet some Mongols who, in typical BBC style, are white people in what is ostensibly, I don't think Mongol face is a term. Well, I did look up that the actress that played Ping Cho, her father or her mother was Malaysian. So she is not just completely just an English person. Although I love that because it's established that um, Ping Cho is from Samarkand, right? So she's an Uzbek girl. Mm-hmm. who has a Chinese name and doesn't appear to be a Muslim. So good job, BBC. But I'm nitpicking because I'm like that. You were nitpicking because while all of that is true, I really liked her. Oh, she was she was pleasant. I mean, she maybe she could be a calming influence on Susan. In this, there are some nice conversations between them, particularly in this first episode where they talk about their concepts of marriage. And that really shows the difference in attitudes between the 13th century and the 20th century. You know, here, marriage is very much for convenience. She's going to be married to a 70-something-year-old in, in Peking. And it's, it's a marriage of convenience. That's all it is. Going back to the Mongols, though, while, while we have white people in Mongol face, the TARDIS crew are immediately mistaken by the Mongols as e- evil spirits, and Marco comes in and saves them. I really saw this as kind of a commentary on almost a, a colonialist level of European civilization, Marco being a Venetian, against kind of the savagery of, of the other. Did anyone else get that vibe, or was that just me? No, I think that was pretty clearly there. And it, what cracked me up is that, you know, Marco Polo, he, he didn't even look at a hint Italian. Yeah, and with a name like Mark Eden, I don't think there was an <laughs> ounce of Italian blood running through his system. I, I wish that the serial did more of Marco explaining to them like what he has learned from his travels and meeting these other cultures instead of he just kinda seems like he's more like a an ambassador more than an in like a person trying to learn about other cultures and other pla- uh, other places yeah I, I, through this i got the feeling he was just thoroughly fed up with it all and wanted to go home you know he'd been stuck in the service of kublai khan for so long he almost lost his zeal for travel well i would like to point out that one of the things that was a, a little pleasant surprise in this first episode and i don't know if this showed up don in your reconstruction but when we would have our voiceover narration by marco you know, writing in his journal, it showed a map, and it was done very much in the classic, like, Indiana Jones style. I 
would really like to know whether that was part of the original production or that was something that was added in for this reconstruction. That same map effect also existed in the version that I watched. So I think the idea at least is taken from the original production. I say that because it wasn't done in the same 3D style as the rest of it, but instead it was recreated using stills, probably much like those that you saw in the loose cannon version. This is one of the few stories, and I'll get back to this a little later and talk about why this is strange, but this is one of the few stories where no clips whatsoever survive to this day. So there is literally not a second of actual footage from this story beyond the recap from the end of The Edge of Destruction. It's such a shame. There were some moments in this where I was like, I want to see how that was done, and I couldn't see it. I've got that several times in my notes. So we've met Marco. We've started the narration and the map. I guess he gives us a bit of a, a history lesson about the past and how he ended up in the service of Kublai. And he drops the bombshell that he wants to give the TARDIS to the Khan, and basically in return for his own freedom. To me, because history is somewhat set, so while this may not have been something that every British child would have learned about in school, there would probably be people in the audience who would have known of Marco Polo and know that, eh, he kind of turns out okay in the end. So that's making the threat to the TARDIS crew rather than to Marco, since we kind of already know what happens to him. True, but it's interesting how, and as this serial develops, Marco really doesn't really paint him in a really good light. <laughs> I mean, compared to how he treats how he treats our, our our heroes. Yeah, he's he's definitely not always portrayed in the best light through the entirety of the story. I literally wrote down Marco Polo is kind of a dick. <laughs> Do you know how many times I have that? Because it is so many. I think I used misogyny or misogynistic more often than I used a dick, but yeah. Even Chicana as our villain had a more charismatic personality than Marco Polo. I thought he made an excellent well, villain. He wasn't overtly threatening, but he was really good at using his powers of influence and charm. Even though to us, he's obviously a complete snake. Well, I have a couple things on that because my first thing was it was never proven exactly why he was trusted so much. Okay, I get that he's a man and he was like, you know, kind of somewhat respected, but also at the same time for Marco to be so like it was so personal for him because there were times when he was talking where I'm like, I need to see your face because... I never really thought that he was that charismatic. I'm sitting here, I'm like, this guy has something up his sleeve. One of my favorite critics, Elizabeth Sandifer, <laughs> just talking about Tigana, she uh, she mentions, I, I think the exact quote she uses is, Marco Polo amounts to seven episodes of an idiot plot <laughs> in which the complete inability of the main characters to figure out that Tigana is evil and persuade everyone else of this is the only thing that keeps it from being a two-episode story. Sandifer, much as I love her, does not like this one there are some good moments especially in this next episode i'm really happy with this next episode so onto the singing sands then episode two we have the doctor being difficult and bad-tempered and sulking and hiding himself away this you guys will get kind of used to this but periodically members of the crew will disappear and that's because they do 42 episodes a year and everyone needs a vacation sometimes so we have billy hartnell off on his first vacation we start we, we continue with our journey I believe this is the episode where uh, we get reminded of um, Susan's age and the time period that she is from because she has to explain fab 
Yeah, she becomes a beat girl. I can't really recall any other moments where she was, you know, so this is what's hip right now kind of thing. I feel like Susan gets some opportunities to actually shine in this episode. She absolutely does. And the thing that I really wanted to point out is Susan and Ping Cho have a conversation that doesn't include a man. So that means they pass the Bechdel test. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. Is this the first time we, we pass it, Julie? I'm pretty sure this is the first time we passed it. Boom! Oh, Susan was brilliant in this episode. I loved her. Yeah, and she she's actually really useful. She, Her and Ping Cho go off and they spy on Tigana, which I actually thought was probably the first time she was useful since going to go and get the anti-radiation drugs. Sadly, they don't actually find anything aside from an oncoming sandstorm. Speaking of that sandstorm, that is one of the reasons why I'm sad we didn't have any actual footage because I wanted to see how they did the sandstorm. I did like the sound, the sound effects they used, and they were uh, very creepy. I was going to say, it's, it's very kind of avant-garde. We're, I guess, maybe eight years before Brian Eno starts releasing stuff on his <laughs> own, but, you know, we're really getting into a discordant dirge of sound to represent the sandstorm. I almost wonder whether it might be one of those things that sounds better than it looked. Don't I hope I'm wrong. That. Don't say it. But no, Julie, I, I honestly felt the same way. I, I really did feel like... This was the, the sandstorm in particular was what the first point where I really thought, I wish I could see this. In this episode, Ian has his uh, James Bond line reading in which he, when he is playing chess with Marco, Marco says, don't be deceived by it, Miss Wright. The desert is always dangerous. And then Ian so smoothly says, like my queen, check. <laughs> Such a male thing to do. <laughs> Ian and Marco seem to get along really well sometimes. I say sometimes. They they always build up this frenemyship. They have this respect for each other, and they, they really seem to get along. They just have opposing goals through the whole thing. It means they can't quite be true friends. Tease him every now and then. I don't think the character would steal something from a group of people in order to get his freedom. That just doesn't sound like something he would do. No, no, I don't think he would. I mean, through the entire serial, it's it's kind of interesting at the end where you just kind of like, oh, and that's Marco Polo. What an interesting person from history. <laughs> like I said before, kind of a dick. I liked how as he was doing this, he's telling the doctor, oh, it's no problem. You can just come with me to Venice and build another one. That would also depict a sense of inflated ego and overconfidence. Like, oh, well, you claim your machine can, you know, your device can do this. Well, obviously, you know, it's not more advanced than something we can handle in Venice. Of course, at this point in the show's history, we don't know that the Doctor didn't actually build the TARDIS. It's really in this episode that we start, we, we got hints at Tigana's villainy in the first one. But here we have him really starting to chew the scenery at times. Here he villainously crushes some fruit <laughs> what an asshole i get the feeling though he he would have been great if, again if we could see this because he's creeping around the camp he's slashing open the water gourds with his plan of basically causing everyone else to die of dehydration while him and his buddies would be perfectly fine he gets sent off to the oasis and he finds water and he plans just to sit there and you know shouts at the screen here's water marco polo <laughs> is the best cliffhanger ever he would have been great to see in this one i really enjoyed his performance on on audio and in the telesnaps but i would I would, again, really love to actually see this. Even though it might seem cliche with the villainous laugh and the 
monologue, the, you know, speaking and raising a fist and speaking out into the open air and all these kind of over the top dramatic things for, you know, a villain uh, for an antagonist to do. But when, even if done somewhat well, it's still something that as an audience we are attracted to. Definitely. So we've talked about Ian, we've talked about Susan, we've talked about Marco, and we've talked about Tigana. Barbara doesn't have a huge amount to do in this episode, but she does say one thing where she describes the TARDIS as a wonderful machine capable of all sorts of miracles. And that, to me, felt very, I guess I'm about to invent a term when I say very Whittakerian, kind of goes back to what I was saying about David Whittaker and his fascination with alchemy and magic and things like the Order of the Golden Dawn. And that really just brings it back to that and further away from those kind of hard science elements that we saw in the first two serials. I love that. Episode three, 500 Eyes. We start this one with a very, very bleak tone. I mean, obviously, they're all extremely thirsty, but the music, I felt, really, really added to the notion of, oh my gosh, there's a very high chance we're all going to die. The episode opens with Marco Polo doing you know, the voiceover, and that's just a device that continues throughout the serial. And I, because Polo is giving the narration, it, it kind of feels like the show is trying to put the audience through the eyes of Marco Polo a little bit. Yeah, I agree with you that it's interesting, but I actually do like it. It was just one of those things where I'm like, I don't know why I like it. So it's not necessarily like, oh, man, I think it's driving the plot or I think it's doing this. I'm on board with what this narration is. Can't pick, put my finger on it. I think it really frames the story very differently. Historically, we would think of this as being the story of of the Doctor and and his friends. But this really frames this story from the perspective of Marco Polo. And Marco Polo is the primary protagonist here. I'm I'm reluctant to say hero because, as we've covered, he's kind of a dick. Isn't most of the things we learned about Marco Polo based off of letters that he sent back? When they think of Marco Polo, they're like, oh yeah, Marco Polo, of course he's going to you know, write letters back about his travels. That's what Marco Polo did. It's like, you know, visiting any other historical uh, person from history. And of course, they're going to be doing the thing they're most famous for doing. There's there's actually a really great little article in Tatwood and Lawrence Miles's About Time series that they call Whom Did They Meet at at the Roof of the World? Where they talk about how the actual writings we have of Marco Polo were not his writings. They were really the writings of the guy who he shared a cell with, a guy called Rusticello of Pisa, who was apparently a notorious liar. So (laughs) nothing from a historical perspective could reliably actually be attributed to Marco Polo himself. But the, the other thing here is, you know, the earliest copy that we have of the main book allegedly written by Marco Polo, actually written by Rusticello, is from 1351, so about 50 years after the fact. It's it's not the most reliable source, is I guess what I'm getting at. So there could well have been TARDISes and travelers from the fourth dimension in the real world, but uh, we would never know. So I did want to touch upon Ian trying to talk to them about condensation. Oh, right. The science lesson. Yes. Basically, all I really said, because like in the end, it's just like, I'm so sorry, Ian. It's trying to teach people that it's just it's really hard if they don't have a general understanding of that kind of science. It's just it's impossible to explain. 
Yeah, it's kind of like trying to teach Mongols the secret of the atom bomb. You know, they're no more likely to understand condensation than they are atomic weapons. I realize I'm taking that to an extreme, but yeah, <laughs> I guess I I'm like, saying I agree with you. <laughs> I was like, you went real dark. Moving on. The Cave of the 500 Eyes. Everyone else had a chance to shine last week except the Doctor because Billy was off on his holidays. This week we have Barbara having her opportunity to shine and be awesome and Barbara-like. I'm a bit in love with Barbara. I love writing things that say, Ian, listen to Barbara in my notes. I mean, if and everyone then- else had listened to Barbara, she wouldn't have followed Tagana on her own, got stuck in the Cave of Eyes, caught by Mongols who wanted to kill her. I mean, she's the first one who really, really starts figuring him out and being really suspicious. Susan kind of got there in the previous episode, but Barbara's like, hmm, I'm going to get you. So first we have Barbara suspicious, but then we get the lovely Ping Cho doing the storytelling, which again, I really wish I could have watched that part because I love when it's that type of storytelling in like other shows and movies that I've seen. Uh, I just think that's a really fun thing. And then we get back to Barbara. That storytelling sequence, I I think is phenomenal. I mean, it really is drawing upon those old kind of oral storytelling traditions that you kind of saw in, uh, I guess, my closest point of reference is ancient Greece. But I think that more pertinently, something like the Arabian Nights would have originally been told through. So that's a really nice touch, particularly given that she's from Samarkand, which is modern day Uzbekistan. I love that. The Mongols who capture her are really quite nasty. They play dice to decide who gets to kill her, and they're laughing, they're taunting her, and it's basically saying, yeah, these guys are bad. They're really bad. They do everything except for attempt to rape her. They, they, they seem to have at least some morals so as not to do that. Otherwise, they're, they're pretty horrible to her. Well, you know, the Mongolian hordes and all not, didn't really have much of a good reputation throughout history. So I doubt that a person writing them in 1963 would make them kind. True. So we head into the cave, and I know from our previous experience of caves in the in the Daleks, uh, I think it was you, Riley, it may have been Don, who said that you thought that they were not terribly well realized on screen, but they here they certainly sound fantastic. I don't know if the Cave of 500 Eyes would have looked fantastic, but the sound we get is very, very atmospheric. But I also thought that the, the paintings on the wall, I mean, just from the stills, were um, unsettling. I mean, they were nice and creepy. It was good. And then, of course, we end the episode with Susan doing what Susan does best and freaking out in the cave. Yeah. But, you know, in all fairness to her, like, you know, she did see something truly creepy. I mean, on, on the Susan scarometer, you know, seeing creepy eyes on a mural that she thought was a mural and, you know, seeing the eyes move, you know, that's unsettling. So we're into episode four, the one directed by a different director, The Wall of Lies. I really loved something the doctor said. He very firmly says, I am not afraid of ghosts. And he's being the scientist that he is. And and then he laughs very coyly at Tigana's suggestion that he might be a magician. And he comes back to the told adage that any advanced form of science is indistinguishable from magic. Can't disagree. So one thing we have here is this interesting kind of playoff between Ian and the Doctor. It's, it's not a big noticeable one, but we have Ian figuring out how the room works and ostensibly being the hero that gets us back towards Barbara. But then later in conversation, Marco actually identifies the Doctor as being the leader of the TARDIS crew and not Ian. So that kind of power play is shifting a bit, I think. 
I don't know if I necessarily felt it as much on this serial. I felt like, if anything, you know, we were talking about earlier about how a lot of the relationship dynamics between all the characters had been fundamentally changed after Edge of Dest- I mean, with the Edge of Destruction serial. Outside of the crankiness of the Doctor at the beginning of this serial, I feel like Ian and the Doctor maybe a little bit, you know, rub into each other just a little bit, you know, where he, you know, the Doctor, you know, calls him Chesterton. Uh, as if he never seems to want to call him Ian. I mean, before, uh, I think he used to just call him Young Man. Uh, so I guess that's an improvement. And even even occasionally, it's it's Chatterton, Chesterfield. <laughs> it's it's the Mister Burns Homer Simpson thing. Yeah. Well, again, we have the the stubborn old man. So I believe we have saved, or Barbara has been saved from the dice winning Mongol from killing her. To me, it seemed like the rest of the episode was basically everyone trying to prove that Tagana is a complete dick and Marco Polo continuing his own brand of dickery by refusing to believe anyone except Tagana, who was recently at war with Kublai. So I must admit some frustration in this episode. Well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we still don't really have a... I mean, I guess the the motivation for the disbelief of our TARDIS crew is that they're lying in order just to get the TARDIS back. In this episode, we even have King Cho accusing Tigana of lying, and she has, I thought, some pretty compelling theories about Tigana and his motives, and Marco, unsurprisingly, because he's an idiot, doesn't agree. Right, and in her, I mean, what would her motivations be? It's funny how the, the traveling of them feels more conducive and more organic to the story than, as you said here, we get to the finger-pointing, non-belief argument that takes place for the whole back half of the serial. That's because we're waiting for seven episodes for Marco Polo to pick up the clue phone. <laughs> to be utterly fair, he has no real reason to trust the TARDIS crew, but he has no reason to trust Tagana so much either. You're so right! Well, in fact, one could argue that he has less reason to believe Tagana than the TARDIS crew. Exactly. If Marco was going to trust anyone, it really should be Ping Cho, but he doesn't. Uh. There's so many times where if he had just listened, the story could have progressed and moved on, but he doesn't, so it feels very frustrating to watch. Very. From the stills, you can see that this put a really strong effort and it looks great. Unfortunately, we don't get to see it. We don't have the thing that could, you know, keep you tuned in, so to speak. And instead, we're, you know, like you're saying, you know, playing the waiting on Marco game. Yeah, I think part of the problem for Ping Cho is that she suffers from that classic problem of being a woman in the late 13th century. And combined with her age, I believe, wasn't she only supposed to be like 18? 16 or 17. Right. She was his charge. He was the one responsible from getting her to point A to point B. So he's very much a, I'm not going to listen to anything that she says because my only responsibility is to take her from here to there. Right. So Marco, not only being a dick, he is a, you know, bringing child brides across state lines, also a felon. <laughs> You're not wrong. Like so far I'm sitting here and I'm like, why should I be a fan of Marco Polo? Heading back to what we were kind of saying about Marco consistently believing Tigana and not believing our heroes. Towards the end of this, Tigana kind of gets lucky in plotting against the TARDIS crew when he basically leads Marco to catch the Doctor coming out of the TARDIS. 
And that fully discredits the Doctor and, and his friends in the eyes of Marco, which really sets up the next few episodes. And so they're, they're imprisoned. And Ian goes to escape and leads us towards the cliffhanger. So with that, we're into episode five, Ryder from Shang-2. And Ian <laughs> is a murderer. Maybe. <laughs> so we have Mongols closing in on the camp. Suddenly we get the Doctor's crazy decision to take everyone away in the TARDIS. Like, literally everyone. Let's just all pile into the TARDIS and leave. Go where? Who knows? He can't actually steer the TARDIS at this point. So let's just take, you know, a bunch of Mongols and Marco Polo on however many serials of adventures through time and space. Why not? Sounds like a plan, Doctor. So we have Ian being the hero of this Mongol bandit attack. The whole attack is another one of those moments that I thought would have been way more effective to actually be able to see the action play out. And given that we're back into Waris Hussein's direction, I can't help but wonder whether he would have used the same fast-forward effects that he used in the brawl in um, in the first serial. So Ian saves the day with his little bamboo trick. Good for you, Ian. I also enjoy how Ian's outfit becomes more and more extravagant through this serial. This is the beginning of Ian looking ridiculous in very outlandish costumes that will continue with him for many more episodes to come. That is one thing you do miss when watching the 3D reconstruction. Uh, Ian, Susan, and Barbara all look like they're dressed to go to a business meeting the entire time. Oh, <laughs> I was wanting to see Ian in his big coat, but I guess you can't have everything. That's actually one of the reasons, or at least one of the theories um, among fans as to why this one hasn't been animated yet in an official way by the BBC. And that's because they think that they would have to animate so many more different versions of each of the characters because of the numerous costume changes over the course of two or three months or however long a period this story takes place over. And I said it just backs up my theories. I feel like, you know, maybe, you know, they realize like, Okay, you know, we're kind of stringing along here with uh, with plot, so what will keep the eyes of viewers? These fantastic costumes. Uh, I, I must say, this kind of reminds me of when I was doing my, my MA. I took a film history class that was cross-listed with the film program, and we had a mature student who was a woman in her 60s. And in the very first class, we kind of went round and were asked to introduce ourselves and explain why we chose to take this class and you know she said she said oh hello i'm heather or whatever her name is and i'm just here for the frocks <laughs> <laughs> which i just thought was wonderful i have a question for you guys julian don are either of you familiar with the musical hamilton uh yes don i've heard of it but i've never actually seen it so julie you'll you'll get this so we we get the the writer from shang Two actually show up and Proclaim that he has a message from the Khan. A message from the king. A message, yes. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking of. I'm kind of glad you knew where I was going with that. Absolutely. That cracked me up. I love those moments, and it's just like, again, I'm a big fan of Hamilton, and the King George III is the best moments anyway, so. He's wonderfully camp, which actually ties in quite nicely to a point of this episode. We get to a town, and the chap who greets them, the appropriately named Wang Lo, is extremely camp. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wait, wait, are you talking about... Is this the guy with the eye patch? No, no. Oh, this is the, the guy, the, the rather large fellow, who is just very, very flamboyant. Yes. I think this might be our first 
extremely camp moment since the oh yes in the very first episode (laughs) that's two on the camp counter we also have a very very nice moment um, between ping cho and susan in this one as well i think just in general this story gives some wonderful character development for susan um just by having her talk to and bounce off of ping cho when we were originally introduced to susan there were some scenes with her with her classmates but you don't really see her interacting with your classmates this is the first time you actually see her interacting with someone her own age it was good to like have that opportunity and i thought it was really clever of them to give her uh, a character like ping cho to be able to talk to and of course, their relationship really gives us ultimately the false ending that we have in this episode, where we think that everyone's about to escape. And this is where we get drunk Ian. And yeah. it was amazing. <laughs> and then Susan screams and gets captured. In my notes, I just wrote, damn it, Susan. And that was it. I have the exact same phrase in mind, Don. <laughs> I... Can we also give a little bit of love to uh, the really superb acting by the little shoulder monkey. Oh my gosh. The the super sketchy guy with the eye patch and the monkey. Yeah. That's now the second Indiana Jones reference. (gasps) Indiana Jones has a guy who I believe also has an eye patch and has a monkey on his shoulder in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Could that guy scream, I am evil, any more than he does from those photos? I mean, just everything about him. But that, um... That monkey was apparently completely untrained and an absolute nightmare to be around on set. Oh, I do not doubt it at all. Like, completely untrained. Oh, incidentally, talking about Kuji, the eyepatch gentleman, he was played by a gentleman called Tuta Lemko, who was actually in Raiders of the Lost Ark. What? Almost makes you wonder as, as to whether either George Lucas or Steven Spielberg may have seen this, except this was never actually broadcast in the USA. Oh, here, here we go. About about the monkey. Apparently it just peed everywhere. And that is the main thing that Darren Nesbitt, who played Tagana, actually remembers about recording this story, was just this monkey peeing everywhere. I bet it did more than that. Mongol face and monkey feces everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. Yep. So Susan wants to say, go and say goodbye to Ping Cho just as they're about to escape, which leads to her being captured by Tagana and our aforementioned damn it, Susan comments. Good job, Susan. A part of me can't blame her all that much, but then I can't. And also, I mean, this has already taken place over several weeks, if not months. So she's obviously built up a very strong friendship and connection with Ping Cho. So I think it's kind of natural that she would want to say goodbye particularly after promising to and i think as we move into episode six mighty kublai khan you know this is something that the tardis crew realized and even the doctor because they make the comment of so long as you're safe that's all that matters and that's what they say to her they could have escaped and they're not upset about it ping cho of course blames herself and runs away tagana is the worst Tigana is the worst. Not as as bad as Marco Polo. I mean, what I love was, you know, obviously they got the key from somewhere and it was because Ping Cho stole it. And Ian, being the mostly top chap that he is, tries to take the blame rather than let Ping Cho be blamed. Marco starts asking awkward questions and Ian, obviously, without directly saying it, basically reveals that it wasn't him and Marco figures out that it was Ping Cho, leading to her running away. It's difficult to get inside the head of a 13th century teenager, but Ping Cho just handing her money over to Kuji was kind of extremely naive. We're back to the Meg Griffin is the worst uh, complex. 
Right, exactly. And of course, Wang Lo shows up and flamboyantly saves her, basically. Helps her figure out she's been scammed. Nice little side adventure for Ping Cho there. She did well. Really makes you wonder how she thought, you know, after everything they went through to get from Samarkand to where they are, how she thought she might be able to either find passage with other people or try and get there on her own. It kind of seems like it wouldn't make sense. So anyway, Ian gets sent after her. (laughs) So Ian is once again charged with being the hero. Stereotypical. I mean, it keeps happening in very early Doctor Who. You know, he, he really is set up as the hero and not the Doctor, even though we're now starting to get comments about how the Doctor is the leader. He's not the heroic, square-jawed young man. I mean, it it almost makes sense because a man of Ian's age would have, while he might not have necessarily fought in World War II, he would have been someone who had done national service after World War II. So he was someone who was trained on how to fight, either during or after the war. So to kind of have him fill that role makes sense, I think. Is this, I believe at this point, don't... Now that we have the introduction of Kubakon, we have what I believe is really piercing musical intro of the horns that just drove me nuts every time I heard it, in which it really made me wonder, like, is this ex- actually, like, is there some sort of historical accuracy? Is this what the horns would have sounded like at the arrival of Kublakan into a court? I, I'm, I'm not too sure about that. I have no context on that whatsoever. Um, I I do think that's an, a disappointing moment for Tristan Carey, who scored this one. I, I think up until that point, the score has generally been fantastic. Can we discuss the character of Kublai Khan, how they <laughs> depicted him? It was very interesting choice. Oh my gosh, I love it. I mean, he's kind of like the crazy old man. <laughs> It's it's like the writers were, um, or the writer was intending to, you know, subvert everyone's expectations of, you know, thinking that it would be like this Conan the Barbarian or something, you know, just a very short-spoken and just brutal. But instead, we have like this silly old man, basically. And I really enjoyed it because the interaction between Kublai Khan and the Doctor was fantastic. It was very good. Yeah, yeah, I I loved those two together. Again, this is one of those moments I really wish we could see. There's the point that they kind of hobble off with each other, complaining about their various maladies. I I thought that was absolutely hilarious. And they're giggling as they're walking off while complaining. I, uh, I really wish we could see that. And then, of course, we, we end with Marco's bizarre, unwavering trust in Tigana. <sighs> who, you know, Marco sent him after Ian, who he sent after Ping Cho. And Marco turns around and says, don't worry, Tigana will bring them to Peking. Well, I kind of expect him just to kill them and be done with it. (laughs) And then at that moment, it pretty much cuts to Kyuju implicating Tigana. Then Tigana shows up and utterly chews the scenery. And then we end with Ian threatening to kill Kyuju, which is... I don't think any of us believe he'll go through with it, but it's still, you know, a strange way to end the episode. What's really interesting, and this is something I find that happens through a lot of the early seasons of Who, is that when you have these long serials, if you look at the run times, oftentimes the last episode of a serial is much shorter than you would expect. It was very clear that there was some padding done. And I think while there are some some nice moments in 
in the final episode. It, it really is just leading up to that final sword fight. Right. And also, and, and because of the fact that that's something that we've been really feeling like there's been such a delay, it really comes as an anticlimax, in my opinion. But we do get the Doctor and Kubla Khan playing, um, or about, oh, I, I don't think they did actually, but they talk about playing backgammon and having tea. It's, it's, it's like seeing them in an old folks' home or something. They do do that because the Doctor tries to win back the TARDIS in the game of backgammon. That's right. I love the fact that Kublai was like, well, I haven't seen this gift yet. How about we play for the island of Sumatra instead? <laughs> hey, I, I might go with the island. I'm not going to lie. I wouldn't blame you. You know, he almost wins the TARDIS back. And when he doesn't, he laughs about it. I mean, this is a sign of him really so- uh, softening. I think the Doctor we saw in the first few serials would have been absolutely furious. Well, I also think that has to do with just how much he has just taken with Kublai Khan. I mean, I think it's like when the few times where you see the doctor like off like first impressions actually really enjoying someone. <laughs> I agree. So after failing to win the TARDIS back, we begins to look like they might be stuck here. And at this point, we didn't have story names. No one quite knew when a serial was going to end and the next one would begin. It wasn't abundantly clear that this would be the final episode of the serial when this was broadcast. So from that perspective, you know, we may as well have been stuck. That's an interesting way of looking at it. But as things happen, everyone gets set up for their happy ending. Lucky them. Ping Cho manages to escape her marriage. Yeah, Good for I'm her. So excited. Because the guy just rather conveniently dies yeah, off screen. Just off screen casually. But do you not weep for your lost love? No, I think Ian killed him <laughs> when no one was looking. <laughs> Continuing his murderous ways. Exactly. Serial killer through time and space. Prove to me he didn't. You can't. He probably probably offed a couple of thals back in the Daleks episode. We did comment that we thought he may have pushed that thal off the ledge, the one who eventually cut himself down. Well, I mean, we have the, you know, the Susan count, and now I think we need to have the Ian body count. <laughs> so we've got the Susan count, the Ian body count, and the camp count. There you go. Wow. Tigana eventually proves that he's villainous and tries to kill Kublai. And everyone seems to realize this, including Marco, just before he's about to do it. Yep. We suddenly have this frantic rush to save the Khan, followed by a sword fight. And I think this goes back to kind of what I was saying about this is Marco's story and not that of our crew, and that it's Marco here and not Ian in the sword fight. In the writer's mind, maybe this is our ways of rehabilitating Marco's character to make him save the day at the end, I guess. I don't know. Pinkshire avoids marriage. Marco gets his freedom. Our heroes... Yeah, they get the TARDIS back. And for once, we're not left with a cliffhanger. It was so anticlimactic. It was like, all right, we have this fight, and everyone is free, and we're done. I mean, Takata killing himself? I mean, come on. I mean, let him go down, like, really fighting, you know? is a guy that's passionate, you know, with all his, like, monologues and his, you know, twirling of his mustache and such. I mean... He, he's not going to do that. He was going to go out fighting, and just to do that just really makes it seem anticlimactic. Well, I, I guess it leaves it kind of open-ended. It's a nice uh, space for Big Finish to potentially insert some stories gratuitously. <laughs> oh, yeah, good point. Yeah. So, we made it. The end of seven episodes of Reconstructed Television. I think this week we are going to rate this one out of Water Gourds. Let's start this week with Don. How many water gourds out of 10 
would you give this one? I think I need to rate this cereal on a scale of eyes. Uh, this would be a scale of zero to 500 eyes, of course. And I'm going to give it <laughs> 250 eyes, putting it square in the middle. That's not necessarily because it's a reconstruction. Because based on the stills, if we could view the actual episode, I'm sure there would have been a lot more visual flair to keep it more interesting. But from a writing perspective, it just felt so very padded. Just for the sake of stretching the plot out to the required number of episodes. Tagana could not have been any more obvious in his villainy, which it just made it so frustrating to watch. So for the, the mathematically impaired, if you are in the rather disappointing cave of <laughs> ten eyes, Would be this fun. one is five out of ten eyes. <laughs> because I can't think of anything else, I'll go with water gourd, unless I go with monkeys, because that monkey man, just a little bit creepy. I'll probably get a, a six out of ten. I agree with a lot what Don said. It just, you know, the storyline was a little weak. It seemed a bit padded, things like that. But I thought that a few of the characters got better moments. So Susan in particular was actually very well done considering um, what has happened in the past. So I'll give it a six. Riley? I'm going to have to give it a four out of 10 water gourds. I mean, first off, you tease me with the possible abominable snowman. We don't get that in the Himalayas. And then we get to meet Marco Polo is a jerk and then the padding and da, 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 it's just, and it's really, and honestly, it's not the fact that it's the re it's a reconstruction. It's just, <sighs> it's, it's obviously that they wanted to, you know, really show something of history. And for that, it does its job, but there isn't much interesting story here. And just like Don mentioned, like, yeah, if we could see like a video and see like the amazing sets, all of them and all the amazing costumes that could probably bump it up to a six. And also with Hussein's direction, I bet he may have had some really wonderful shots and some great, you know, great camera movement and could have made it up to maybe a seven just for that. But like when you're stuck with the reconstruction and all you have is the stills and you have just this performance of the script, it's a, it's a four out of 10 waterboards. All right. And I think, personally, I'm going to go with 6 out of 10 water gourds. I actually agree with points made by almost all of you guys. But from my perspective, I think this is a, a nice character piece. Uh, it's plodding at times, but I really like the framing device of Marco's narration. From what we can see of the costumes and the sets, it looks absolutely stunning. I realize we're only four stories in, but so far this is, uh, this is one out of one on stories that I would most like to see return to the archive. Before we call it a day, let's talk about missing episodes. As of today, there are 97 missing episodes. When I first started watching Doctor Who in the early 90s, there were 114. So there's been some progress made. And in most of these, aren't they, when they're discovered, it's either people that actually like happened to or somehow recorded them alive? Not quite. So most of them that are found are either in the hands of private collectors, and what happened with those tend to be when they were being ordered for destruction rather than sending them off to be burned. Someone would take one home, and it would make its way onto the secondary market and eventually end up in the hands of a collector. Or they're discovered in foreign countries at the TV stations that they were sold to. So for the benefit of, of anyone coming across this concept of missing episodes for the first time, 
what happened was, and the reason for this was the BBC believed that these had a very limited shelf life. No one thought that they would be able to repeat them after a certain time. They certainly didn't foresee the availability of of home video um, or even bringing us into the 21st century streaming. So after a while, they just said, all right, let's destroy them. They're just taking up space in our shelves that we could use for other things. In regards between, between television and video back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, between the two art forms, television would be looked down upon compared to film. People could understand like re-releasing something like Gone with the Wind, but no one would believe the idea that viewers would want to rewatch television. And uh, we're not there yet, but bluntly, I'll go ahead and say this: no one wants to rewatch the Space Pirates. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've heard it. No one wants to rewatch that. So I can kind of see where they're thinking. And th- this wasn't an exclusively British phenomenon. You know, mm-hmm. this happened in the U.S. Some of the early Super Bowls are missing, as an example. There, there was no love of of things being retro in the 1960s. No one was like, "Oh man, I really would like to listen to a radio show from the 1940s right now." Yeah, th- there's a lot of radio that's still out there. I think radio was saved more often than TV, and you know, things like all of um, FDR's fireside chats, all of them are available. I believe that yeah, when you were talking about uh, for American. Um, television show i believe the honeymooners was the television show that had many lost episodes i don't remember i remember those being advertised or being mentioned as being lost and i think maybe they had been found but there was a period for a while where that show was missing several episodes yeah certainly when the bbc realized that this was you know their back catalog was something that could potentially be exploited for home video or potential resale overseas again it was the late 70s and that's when they put out, started putting out appeals to get material returned. So you start seeing the slow trickle. Um, when they originally audited their film archives in 1977, they only had 47 episodes of Doctor Who from 1963, the route of that time, that were actually still in existence. Wow. But that was just the film library. They they had an engineering department that had a lot of them. They had BBC Enterprise had, Enterprises had a film vault. National Film and Television Archive had a bunch of episodes. So they, they put together a, an, an official archive. As a result, they, they started getting some returns. And they kind of trickled in. And, you know, as they reached out to other countries and private collectors and the British Film Institute, they, they started getting a, a slow trickle. And in some places, they got full stories. In others, they would just get the odd episode, which is why we have, for example, four out of six episodes of The Reign of Terror. And the good news is, in recent years, there's been an even more concerted attempt to actually go and find them. Uh, in the late 2000s, a gentleman called Phil Morris realizing that no one had actually physically been to any of these former British colonial countries that were sold Doctor Who, decided, you know what, I'm going to go and physically look. And he started going around places like Nigeria, Ethiopia, Sierra Leone. I believe he's been to Hong Kong. He's basically taken it upon himself to go and look everywhere across the former British Empire. In 2013, he returned nine episodes, so completing one Patrick Troughton story and nearly completing another. That in and of itself sounds like it could be a fantastic film. The story of a person searching for lost episodes all around the world. 
Well, he said that when he's finished his search, he will tell his story in the form of a book, which I wouldn't be surprised if that gets made into a film. So he basically gave back two stories in 2013, and he said that was purely to commemorate the show's 50th anniversary, and he wouldn't hand anything back until he finished his search. And I remember first hearing the rumors about what he was doing in 2011 when a good friend of mine back home, who's a massive Doctor Who fan, told me that an eccentric guy had been abroad and found all of the missing episodes. I think that's an exaggeration, but I wouldn't be surprised if he has a lot more. He always said once he finished his search, not only would he tell his story, but he would return everything he's found. About two or three months ago, he started returning things. He, he returned a few comedy shows. So I'm very hopeful that in the future, we might be able to actually watch some of these missing stories rather than rely on reconstructions. Also, I think if we can get some good reference shots, maybe maybe the four of us should all cosplay characters from Marco Polo and just be incredibly obscure. Well, you know who I'm picking. <laughs> Riley, I look I forward to seeing you as Kublai Khan. That would be my second choice. It's Ping Cho, right? Please don't disappoint me. Dear listener, if we get through a story that... Uh, wasn't existing when we watched it but it's later found we will find a way to we'll, we'll find a way to watch it and let you know our thoughts so with that we will bid you all farewell we have been the watchers in the fourth dimension thank you for listening you have been listening to watchers in the fourth dimension with don smith julie Philippak, riley shrek and myself anthony williams this episode, Mongol Face and Monkey Feces, was recorded on Wednesday, December the 19th, 2018. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D. If you are enjoying this podcast, please take the time to leave us a review on either iTunes or Stitcher. And always remember, when someone seems to obviously be a villain, they're probably actually a villain.